welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. My name is Craig. Today with us, we have Chris, Dennis, Marla, Mark, buddies in the background, Lou's just coming in, and of course, we have Sensei Michael Ellison with us. Good afternoon, Sensei. How are you? So before we start, Sensei, do you want to give us a quick update on the book, how the book's going? Yeah. Uh, today, if you go to Red Feather Facebook page, you'll find a uh, video of the interview the publisher did today. It was about an hour long on the book and asked, answered very many questions. And if you go to www.ascc.org, atlantasotozencenter.org, you'll find some links to the book and some uh, commentaries about it. We have a landing page where it, it has the uh, foreword by Norm Fisher, who's a well-known Zen teacher and poet, and uh, several of the blurbs that were written for the book by different Zen teachers, and some uh, testimonials that some of the students in the reading groups wrote about it and how they felt it was different from other Zen books for their practice. So those links are all uh, there. Uh, if you go to the Atlanta Soda Zen Center webpage, or the Silent Thunder, S-T-O-R-D-E-R, S-T-O order, S-T-O-R-D-E-R uh, dot org. And uh, it's launching very well. It, it went to number one in its category on Amazon. They sold out and uh, they're reordering. You can also get it from Red Feather uh, themselves at their website. And it's available on Barnes & Noble. But we recommend going directly to Red Feather. They have a coupon uh, which saves you the shipping. The shipping was something like $16, which seemed awfully high to me. But they have a coupon in which for which you can get free shipping. And so, um, yeah, it seems to be seems to be doing well. I said congratulations on it going at number one. I've ordered it. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm in the UK, and my, my, my update is saying that they don't have a delivery date for the UK, for the UK release yet. So as soon as I get that one. Been delayed a little bit. Uh, they even had to delay the printing. COVID interfered somehow with getting it printed in China. They had it printed in India. The book itself is a very nice uh, product. I mean, it's, uh, it's well-bound. It's well-printed. It's... Uh, you know, just as an object, this is a technical object. They they didn't they just embossed the title on it, so it's like a black slab lying there on your on your table. Mm. And uh, people are, you know, good reviews are coming in on it. The, amongst the uh, other blurbs, they're written by Brad Warner. James Ishmael Ford, who wrote Zen Master Who and several other books. These are all authors as well. Ben Connolly, you may have heard of. Grace Shireson, Shohaka Okamura, who's a very well-known teacher. They were all kind enough to write very nice blurbs. And again, Norm Fisher wrote the foreword, which is available for you to read on our landing page at ASCC.org. Well, I'm happy. 
uh, we'll be spending the whole month uh, promoting it. You know, oh. I'm going through on my tours? email list, so you may you may get a copy if you're on my email. Uh, not a copy, but a, a copy of the uh, promotion if you're on my email list. Some people are going to get more than one <laughs> because they have duplicate emails. Fantastic. That's, that's great news. So today we're well, trying to get them. I'm getting emails saying I got my book today. So Excellent. Well done. I'm ever so slightly jealous because it may be a while before I get mine. Um, so we're here for the seventh verse of the Tao as, uh, and we're working from the Dr. Wayne Dyer version. So what I'll do is I'll just, um, do I have that copy? Just get two seconds. I have that. So Marla, are you okay to read the verse and then we'll pass back to Sensei for the, for the rest of the meeting? I'm ready. Oh, seventh verse. Heaven is eternal. The earth endures. Why do heaven and earth last forever? They do not live for themselves only. This is the secret of their durability. For this reason, the sage puts himself last and so ends up ahead. He stays a witness to life, so he endures. Serve the needs of others, and all your own needs will be fulfilled. Through selfless action, fulfillment is attained. Pretty big chapter. Yeah, thank you very much, Marla. Uh, and thanks, everybody, that's contributed to the questions as well this week. Lou came out with an absolute belter. So do you want me to start with the questions? I had a comment uh the last part of the verse, serve the needs of others and all your own needs will be fulfilled. This has become almost a almost a cultural meme now in the uh, pandemic. You've seen a lot of self-help advice columns and things like that saying, how do you survive this insanity, you know? And one of the biggest suggestions that came out as a repeat kind of theme was help others. And if, if, you, if you can can get yourself to help others, you'll find it's going to help you a lot. And that's kind of uh, the Bodhisattva vow right there. You know, help all others to the other shore before before going to nirvana yourself. You know, it's kind of a funny, funky idea. So I'm looking at um, number one is not quite a question, and I'm not sure who these are from. Buddy sent them to me. Whenever I interact with someone... May I view myself as the lowest amongst all and, from the very depths of my heart, respectfully hold others as superior. This tells who it's submitted by, but I'll, I'll skip the name unless he yeah, wants so, to. Yeah, I, I, can, I can just clarify that one. That, that was sent in by Lou, um, and it was in relation to a quote from, I think I've got it here. Uh, the Dalai Lama. That's that's the one. Look, so, so the, the original question on the Facebook page was: um, Does Sensei see any correlation between the seventh chapter of the Tao and the second verse of the training of the mind of His Holiness the Fourteenth Dalai Lama? Well, there's an interesting quote from uh, Sri Ramakrishna, who you may have heard of. I'm getting uh, feedback. Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, sorted out. Okay. Uh, he said, he said a lot of funny thing, interesting things. He said, I am the dust of the dust of your feet. <laughs> so he had a very humble <laughs> position he was taking. 
And in Zen, uh, the, the being myself as the lowest amongst all is a little, little harsh, a little extreme. But uh, holding others superior is a little extreme. And Zen, it would be at least equal, you know. Uh, and trying not to get the big head, see ourselves as in any way superior to others, is all very Zen. But, uh, for instance, uh, some of you are familiar, I don't have it on now, but the rakusu I wear is a brown rakusu. It's a little apron, a bib-like affair that you put around your neck. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a miniature model of the, of the big robe. It's kind of sewn in the same pattern, only very small. And the backside is certificate. So you wear it around your neck with like a halter. It's probably a Chinese design. They were very practical. And the robes are not always practical. So this is where you, way you can wear the robe without it getting in your way. But, um, in Japan, um, one of my senior students who was a psychiatrist and I traveled there in 1987 and we visited Eheji, which is the monastery established by Master Dogen. So it's one of the two main training monasteries in Japan. The emblems on the Rakusu are Eheji and Sojiji, which is the other one. My teacher, Matsuoka, trained at Sojiji. Eh? Sojiji was founded by Keizan Zinji in Japan, who's said to be the mother of of Zen in Japan. He was a few generations after Dogen, and Dogen is said to be the father. They had different personalities. Keizan was very gentle, and Dogen seems kind of like a very um, not suffering fools gladly kind of person, something like that. So uh, we went there, and uh, there's a guy named, uh, I can't think of his name yet, but he was the head of the English-speaking department, and we met with him, and he's looking at us, sitting there with our Raku Suzan. He said, those are very high rank here. And so we both took them off, put them away. And he said, no, no, you can wear them. You're Americans. <laughs> so we're gaijin, you know, we don't count. And Dogen ran with anything. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, Dogen ran into the same thing in China. He was Japanese, so he just, he, he sort of sat at the end of the hierarchy. He wasn't. Anyway, uh, they're, they're, they're colored by rank. So if you have a black one, that's the first. It's like black belt, brown belt in, in the martial arts. But here, not so much. Uh, we consider the highest ranking person, and another person from another um, lineage told me this when I got into trouble with some of my students. The robe sort of went to their head in the wrong way. You're supposed to put the robe on your head when you do the robe chant, but it's kind of gone to their head in the, in the wrong way. And uh, there was some complaints and things going on. And so one of the people from the Soto Zen Buddhist Association of America was talking with me, and she was offering counseling to different groups who were having different personality issues. And she said, in our lineage, which is, I believe was Nebraska Zen Center, uh, Noam Kowaini, I, I, I happen to know him. Uh, I'm not sure if he's deceased yet or not. But she said, when you get the black robe, that's the novice priest robe. Later, you get a brown robe. You're fully transmitted. The black robe is the first priest robe. She said, as soon as you get the robe, you drop to the bottom of the rank. You are now in service to everybody. 
And so we kind of view it that way. When you walk in the door, brand newcomer, we don't know who you are. It's your first time. You could be Maitreya Buddha of the future for all we know. So the, the rank newcomer who walks in the door for the, the first time has the highest rank in, in, uh, in Sotos and at least the way we approach it. I'm a brown robe. I'm a guy. I'm a founder and guiding teacher. So my place on the totem pole, I tell people is the hole you dig in the ground to put the totem pole in. That's me. That's me. <laughs> so it's a little like that, but with more of a sense of humor, it's not so much, uh, False modest. It's not like false modesty. So is that good enough on that? Any, anything else? It's, it's an interesting. It's an interesting perspective. That being the hole in the ground. I've never thought of being that. I never thought of being that low. Um, and the uh, hold up the totem pole. Right, and I, I can't really see anybody in Zen Buddhism kind of arguing about anything. I, I thought it would just be everybody would get on in peace and tranquility. Well, we have debates. And uh, sometimes we have arguments and even it's not quite comes to blows, but it gets pretty, pretty, uh, pretty vigorous. But what you what you find if you watch it is you see that each side of the argument or debate is trying doing their best to defend the Dharma, the teaching and, and so forth in the best way they know how. But they may disagree on how to do that. But you can see that each one is earnestly. And we've had fights like that. Since I was coming to town once, and one guy thought we had a little, we had a little, little hole in the wall over here in Candor Park in Atlanta, with a sloping concrete floor. It used to be the service bay of an old, old uh, service station, and he wanted to build a floor in there. He was a builder; he knew how to build a plywood floor, so it'd be a nice flat level floor when when Sensei came to town. And so I said, I think that's a good idea. So he goes and shuts the place down and starts building this thing without checking with the board of directors or anything, you know. And he was that kind of guy, you know. The head of the board of directors was really upset, and they they got into it fighting with each other there. They were both wanting me to take sides. I wouldn't take sides because I saw they were both trying to defend what they thought was the right approach, you know. (laughs) So what happened? So the second question, do you want to go on? Yeah. yeah. Just when you're ready. This is your meeting, Craig. You just tell me what to do. How does Zen interpret the phrase, they do not live for themselves only? Can you give me a little background on that, where that comes from? This was one of Buddy's. This is one of Buddy's questions. This is okay. one that Buddy threw in. Is he um, he's, he's, he's there. Yep. Oh, there he is. You, you answered that since saying the first question, I believe when you, I was just talking about the rep, uh, in Zen, uh, your relativeness to everyone else. Yeah. Well, the Bodhisattva so, kind of captures this, um, in a Sangha, the key word is harmony. The last thing you want to do is create any disharmony in the Sangha and be disruptive, anything like that. It happens, but uh, a Sangha is defined as harmonious, the harmonious community. So we belong to many communities at work, at home, you know, friends and associates and different clubs and stuff we belong to. They're not always harmonious. So to qualify as a Sangha, you have to be harmonious, and that has to be your main guiding principle. We, we sustain, maintain harmony. 
So you see the Quakers, they have all kinds of ways of voting and trying to make decisions and trying to maintain harmony. It's not strictly uh, restricted to Zen. But uh, they do not live for themselves only is another way of stating the Bodhisattva vow that that I'm here to help all others. Uh, hopefully it will help me too. But it's better attitude to take than to think that I'm going to straighten myself out and become liberated and the hell with the rest of you. You know, it's not like that. It's like the Mahayana is the greater vehicle. Uh, Hinayana is lesser vehicle. These are visualized as carts, like the Mahayana is a big cart pulled by a big white bull. So everybody can get on board. It's like the big tent. And the idea in Mahayana, the greater vehicle, which is Zen is part, uh, is that you can't really, no one, no one person, as if there is such a thing, and we challenge, we challenge you in that idea, but no one of us can be liberated, uh, without all beings being liberated. So it's along those lines. That makes sense? Yes. Now, in practice, you, you can't liberate everybody. How many are there? How long is it going to take? I mean, you have to be humble about it. You, you, you know, it's hard work and there's a lot of people. So, number three, do you want to go on? Okay. The sage puts himself last and ends up ahead. How do we apply this so we can be ahead all the time? <laughs> I would, the quick answer would be by putting yourself last all the time. So, we have this thing with the COVID virus and the vaccine and we have line cutters you know people people jumping the line as they say and we have whole apparently wealthy groups who are getting themselves vaccinated out of turn by doing deals behind the scenes uh that's the kind of downside to this whole thing the social dimension and the hierarchy the caste system in india we have a caste system here. You know, it's not as perhaps as uh, recognized or uh, publicized. But Isabel Wilkerson's latest book was called Caste. And she points out that racism as such, and her last book was on uh, the warmth of other sons of the diaspora from uh, the blacks in the south to the north. And now that's they're starting to come back. Uh, this one was about caste, C-A-S-T-E. And that racism is one dimension of the caste system. There are many, many other levels of discrimination and so forth that aren't necessarily based on, aren't based on race. There are other kinds of castes. So Buddhism, Buddha's first uh, order uh, of monks and nuns, he did not, they did not apparently try to upend the government. They were not politically revolutionary in that sense, they were a lot more subversive. They set up a different order. And you could come and join them and live with them uh, if you were willing to leave everything else behind. Now, chances are Buddha was a very high caste. He was the warrior caste, which is the second level, and the Brahmin's first level, and so forth. And <clears throat> often you hear, you, you see that the people who are talking with him in these recorded teachings are Ananda, his cousin, and you know, different people who are related to him. So chances are, in that society, if you were high caste, you had much more privilege to make a decision to go join this order. If you were low caste, untouchables and so forth, you probably didn't have that much 
flexibility in, in, in your economic situation to go join this order. So who knows? But the ideal of it is that anyone could join from any caste. And so it was subversive in the sense that it did not support the caste system. Now, they were dependent on the society. The begging bowl was their business model. So uh, this was considered to be a training ground for sages. In other words, difficult to become a sage if you live in everyday life. You have household, family, cars nowadays, kids to put through college, all of this stuff. That's considered householder practice is considered very difficult practice. We have another podcast, by the way, it's called Householder. And it's basically interviews with people like, like ourselves who are, 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 are lay people and how, how different people are finding ways to integrate this practice into their life. So the Householders podcast may be more interesting to you than mine. Mine is the other one. But they both seem to be pretty good, I think. The guy who produces them is really expert. So we would ap apply this. I don't think it requires that you take on a false humility or too much, too much modesty. But that when in your transactions with other people, you learn to listen. Uh, you learn to, in business, I'd say, treat every individual as a collaborator, not as an enemy, for sure, but not necessarily as a client either, a collaborator. We're both trying to do the same thing here. And so let's work together. And I have a, um, I think Buddy may have, I may have sent it to Buddy. I have a non-directive interview technique that I learned when I was trained in consumer research. And it helps you carry on a conversation with a difficult person, for instance. Maybe you have a relative who's extremely uh, fundamental Christian and has a real problem with your practicing Taoism or meditation or something. And Thanksgiving dinners are awkward, that kind of thing. This is a way to simply interview the other person where you engage the conversation, but you don't, you don't have to get in a fight, into a fight with them or into an argument. So I'll be happy to send that to anybody who requests it, or uh, buddy, buddy can send it to you. You, it took me three years to train in it uh, professionally and to to get good at it. It's not exactly natural. You have to kind of learn a different way to talk. You don't say, "Why do you think that?" That's very challenging. You you learn to say, "What makes you feel that way?" You know, and then tell me more about that, and so forth. Those kind of probes. So I think there's some almost mechanical techniques that you can train yourself in so so you can always sort of be putting yourself in a harmonious relationship with others on a one-to-one -one basis. It's harder with a group. It's very complex. But they say Zen is strong. I think this is a Taoist expression as well because like the ocean, it is below everything else. So all the water and the rivers run down to it. And all the rivers are all the different traditions, Taoism, Buddhism, etc. Uh, Zen is the simplest, irreducible meditation, etc. And so all the waters you finally flow to it. So that kind of philosophy is, is helpful in dealing with others. Any more on that? Press. I just, uh, this sounds a lot like um, just having empathy for people. 
Yeah, if you look, you know, they say Buddha read people's minds. And by the way, the upcoming podcast, uh, I talk about compassion and how uh, Buddha was said to be able to read people's minds. And it's just that he was, we think he was just such an empath. He was so empathic that he could read you like a book. You know, he could feel what you were feeling and so forth just by your gestures and facial expression. And this is a well-known thing. This is not just Buddhist or, or Zen. But he, um, you have to remember, or, you know, the way we think he, he, he was probably pretty sensitive as a child. There are stories about him. Who knows whether they're true, seeing an earthworm writhing in agony that had been cut by the plow, stuff like that when he was an infant. He's in a, in a crib of some sort out sitting out on the field and he sees these things. So this accumulates over time, according to the story, and he gets to the point that he can't, he becomes estranged, estranged from his own existence because of so much suffering and he doesn't understand why it has to be so so painful for, for every everybody and everything. Uh, and that what that's what drove him to the cushion. Finally, as the as the story goes, something happened. Something transpired in his meditation, where we think he became even more empathic, and he kind of overcame his own suffering. But then he turns around and he sees the suffering of everybody else, and had to be crushing, just crushing, kind of like the zombie movies. He- what was thinking about when, when Sensi was talking about the the empathy? I could see how that level of empathy would put a lot of people into a victim mindset. You know, there's, there's all this suffering going on, and what can we do about it? I, I think it's interesting that a lot. Of, well, some people can turn it around to like a victim mindset and, and go out of the way to help people. I, I heard a funny thing on uh, on empathy, and, and a friend of mine, he's it's on a podcast. It's actually Dalai Lama's physician, and he has to be a Buddhist himself. And um, he says that you have to watch out because empathy comes with attachment. So it's better to practice compassion instead, where you can actually enjoy helping others. But if you have empathy, you're, you're, you're emotionally attached somehow. That was the thing. And it, and it kind of made me think that, yeah, I can, I can see that, that you can detach and, and be compassionate without uh uh, without attachments, and that would be more com- compassion instead of empathy. Doesn't recovery help us with that, though? I think it helps me because that was really my training for learning to be compassionate was the the relief I got when I helped someone else. It taught me how to be compassionate in other ways, too, without uh, an agenda. Yes. Did that help you, Dennis? Yeah, yeah. Without an agenda, I remember being so frustrated when I gave people a big book and they didn't read the damn thing. That was because I had an agenda. They should be better and they should listen, right? So, so it upset me. So I didn't do it for a while (laughs) before I could do it with compassion and just give it away freely. But I had that thing. No, you need to fucking learn this. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm going to do this for you, you better, uh, you better get sober. You better do what I'm asking. Yes. Right. And I guess that's what empathy can give you. It gives you those attachments uh, to stuff where compassion is, is just you joyfully give something away without expectations. I think that makes perfect sense. Compassion. 
Um, I was interested in that because he talked about, uh, you know, the Thanksgiving dinner problem um, and how uh, it can be so confrontational. And these are people that you're probably attached to already. Um, and so, you, but, but you still get into these um, disagreements with them. I was reading a book called uh, Non-Volatile Communications that my therapist gave me. And the, what, they, what, what helps is to be able to show empathy for them, see their point of view. And then it, it sort of uh, allows you to say, um, express how you feel rather than what they're doing. And so I was trying to um, uh, relate that to this whole issue, of, you know, thing of doing things for other people, too. How about the St. Francis prayer, Chris? Yeah. Does that help you with that? <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah, I often want to do that instead of the Lord's Prayer. But <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sir, you know, it's always, it's not meant to be a flip, it's, but it's on the cushion. You know, you, you, you develop empathy for yourself. The Metasuda is about concentric circles. Like you start with the self because you have to have patience with yourself before you can have patience with anybody else. You have to be at peace before you can do anything for world peace and so forth. All of those ideas are like that. Charity begins at home. But then you expand your embrace out to include, you know, your pets, your cats, your dogs, your your uh, family, your wife, your husband, uh, children, and sometimes that's very difficult if you're like me. And, uh, you know, all those relationships. Uh, and, and then gradually you work your way out to friends and, you know, colleagues and people you don't get along that well with and, and people you don't even know or people you really don't like, you know, are out there on the on the perimeter and into politics and all of that. You know, and how do you expand that embrace to include everybody? So I think what happens is you can't really just make up your mind to do that. You can't change your mind in that sense. But if you sit on the cushion and you sit still enough long enough and you sort of break down your own personal resistance to your own existence, where you're okay with your own aging, sickness, and death, the three cardinal marks of dukkha or suffering that Buddha pointed out, if you Come to embrace that, and it's okay with you. Uh, then you can be. I think you can begin to see uh, the behavior of other people as their own suffering. Suffer, uh, compassion means suffer with. Come means with. Passion means suffer. And so, empathy, I think, develops from begins to develop from that. But and I think. Uh, uh, Buddha was said to be a mind reader, and in India, this would be considered Siddhi, S-I-D-D-H-I, a, a magical or a paranormal power, uh, that he could read your mind. And there were many charlatans and, you know, magicians and people like that on the streets selling, you know, all of this hypnotism and stuff. So uh, he didn't want to be his uh, followers to be seen like this. So he, in the Shurangama Sutra, he actually warns them against demonstrating their, their paranormal powers. He said, you, you may or probably will develop these in your meditation because you become so hypersensitive that you're that much more sensitive to everybody else. 
And uh, it's not necessarily a good thing. It can be very, uh, as I said, probably very crushing for him. That kind of realization uh, is not doesn't feel good. But um, in in treating it as a paranormal power, we have to recognize that everybody must have the potential for it. And so if you sit in meditation, the theory goes, I think, you become even more sensitive uh, than you... We, we, we all go around turning ourselves off because there's just the world is too much with us. The ads, the television, the politics, the, the you know, overflow of information battering us every day. We turn that off, but we don't do that necessarily consciously. It happens subliminally, so we become numb. And then when we go on retreat, we find those defenses falling away after five days or, you know, three, four days. And sometimes when we return from a retreat, we have a reentry problem, like the old LSD days. When you come down, you have a reentry problem, getting back into normal. And so you can't stand to listen to the radio and watch the TV, but you become prickly. And so I think uh, this is more the sort of physiological or psychological area that this stuff really happens in. It's not like magic. It's more that we all have this ability, these abilities. We don't use them, and so we sort of lose them. They, we, don't, we adapt, and we, we, we turn everything off in order to maintain our sanity, you might say. Then when we start becoming more sensitive this way, it's like personality disintegration. You could say you're going out of your mind, kind of. So I think you have to go through those Dharma gates or those barriers to get to this level that Buddha represented to everybody. This guy was recognized as the fully awakened one. And so he was thought to be magical and be able to, you know, do miracles. And there, there are some stories like that are, that are related. It's not as heavy duty as uh, Jesus Christ stories and so forth. So I would say that empathy lands lives somewhere in there in 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 zen we all have that capability we're all empathic but like any other trait uh or it could be developed you know you could develop it and we think meditation is basically the method for developing these things repetition just like playing the piano depends on repetition before it can really become musical, that kind of thing. So, how would you sorry? How would you resist becoming attached through your empathy? Uh, the as I was saying, the bad news is that it doesn't feel good necessarily. Uh, you suffer with compassion. Suffer with people who they're probably not going to recover in this lifetime. Yeah. Drug addicts, uh, all kinds of things. Um, where the kind of patience we learn to practice is not a cop-out, but it's a patience that recognizes that it's not attached to outcomes. Mm-hmm. You practice patience with, patience with others and with a situation in spite of the fact that you cannot help them. You can try, you know, but we can't do much to help each other. We think the main thing you can do to help somebody else is expose them to this practice so they can overcome their own ignorance, so they can they can get there themselves. 
even Buddha can't do it for you. You know, couldn't do it for you. But he could certainly read you like a book. He could probably see right where right where you were at, you know. Yeah. And I think that's where that those sort of mystical ideas of cities and power, paranormal powers and so on came from. But it's just, you might say, it's just incredible empathy, you know. And then that bit about how to be fulfilled by meeting other needs is sort of along the same lines, I think. Uh, you, you can't really meet others' needs 100%, but you can try. And in and, and Zen, we think the only thing we can really teach is the method. It's just, again, like piano, you can't teach music. People have to, people have to reach a turning point where what they're doing is, becomes musical. True, truly musical. But you can teach them the guitar, the techniques, how to finger the chords and strum the strings. You can teach them fingering on the keyboard and music theory, chord structure. You can teach, there are many, many things that are teachable. But you cannot teach music any more than you can teach Zen. But that doesn't mean the person cannot learn it. And the, and we th we think and in design it's design and art is the same thing. Repetition is the key. Uh, you know the Mozart is an exception. You know uh, Dogen was an exception. Prodigies, you have prodigies. Uh, but for most people, it just takes a lot of sheer repetition to get beyond all the baggage we're carrying and get to where you can freely play an instrument, for instance, and other people find it very musical, very beautiful, or dance, or painting, anything you want to name. Uh, and the same thing with Zen. There's a turning point at which it becomes the, the real thing, and you you will know it. No, Nobody can give that to you. Fortunately, they can't take it away either. <laughs> But you have to keep it practiced. <laughs> I think so. Uh, I, there's a theory that there's a turning point beyond which there's no going back. You can't lose it. And what has become, what usually would be considered an altered state has now become an altered trait. It's been become hardwired. Mm -hmm. So there's some hope and comfort there. Mm -hmm. Like a bicycle. Like a bicycle, it's hard to lose that. Uh, at my age, I'm afraid to ride a bicycle, but I still know how, at least. You know. I, I do have a question about Mozart, now that you brought him up as a prodigy. Yeah. In terms of Buddhism, how do Buddhists see that kind of innate, inborn talent? And what, what I, what I thought is, he he was re he's been reincarnated so many times and he he just his, in his last life he comes back as you know the musician he was meant to be in his past life yeah that would be that would be you know in zen everything is i think we we would say everything is possible but some things are just a lot less likely you know so you want to have a little bit of balance there but mozart uh, was a prodigy genius. Uh, uh, how he developed his music so quickly is not really explainable in ordinary terms. And uh, apparently nobody taught him. He didn't. His father didn't teach, or his uncle, whoever he was living with, him, had the piano in the attic and all that story. Uh, 
And Zen, these prodigies, like Hui Nang, who was the, fifth, the sixth patriarch in China, never had a teacher, was profoundly enlightened by hearing uh, a monk chanting the Diamond Cutter Sutra. He was like 25, illiterate, probably many couldn't read court language. He might have been able to read something. But it hit him like a ton of bricks, and he made provision to take care of his mother. He was chopping wood and delivering firewood to take care of his mother. And he followed this monk back to the monastery long distance away, where Hongren was the fifth patriarch. Within nine months, he was given the robe and bowl. He was the new patriarch. <laughs> this would be like, the, the not the Dalai Lama, but the Pope, anointing some kid from the boondocks who couldn't even read. You know, as the next pope. <laughs> so it caused a big stink in the monastery. But anyway, uh, those are explained uh, off of the, the phrase that uses merit accumulated in past lives. So it's along the lines of what you're saying. But in Buddhism, the principle is rebirth. It's not Hindu-like reincarnation. Uh, it Reincarnation is based on a concept of a transmigrating soul similar to Christianity, which didn't exist at the time, called the Atman. And uh, Buddha taught Anatta, Anatman. No, I find no evidence of that. He said when the self comes apart, it's like a chariot laying parts all lying there on the ground. Where's the chariot? It's not there anymore. It's only in the assemblage that there is the, the person. So this is a fuzzy logic thing, it, but it says that the one that is reborn is not the same person that died, but there's a karmic remainder carried over influence. It's a little like DNA. You could, you could think of it like that. So Mozart's parentage had to have some effect on him, but whether there was somehow music wired into that, you know, is hard to figure. So you, you would say something like what you're saying, some kind of karmic carryover made him the genius he was. Yeah, because you know, where did it come from? It couldn't be attributed to training. You know, he just sat down and started playing. The, but other people have done that. Uh, there was a, a story recently where some young boy got up on the on the bench and started playing the piano and just started playing. So, and, and the, the, the Tibetans take this a step further. They're, they're more, I don't know what the right term is. I don't mean to be pejorative by picking the wrong term. But they have the, the new Dalai Lama is, is as a child, as a baby, a toddler, can recognize his own toys out of a batch of toys and, and takes those and plays with those. And so they think, oh, he's the reincarnation of so-and-so, you know. <laughs> Because those belong to him, you know. Now, you know, how, how, how much of those stories are for purposes of, you know, maintaining this. Um, in, in Tibet, Tibet was never free. We had all these bumper stickers, free Tibet. The Dalai Lama was also the head of the government. So they were mixed, you know. We're, we're the ones who have come up with separation of church and state, I think. Uniquely, United States of America was the first government that came up with that idea. I think I'm not. Sure. I'm not a historian or a scholar, so I'm. I'm not saying that there were political reasons for their maintaining a myth. You know, um, 
it's possible. It's possible. Everything is possible in Zen. Good enough. <laughs> yeah. Good enough answer. It's yeah. the best uh, it, you can get. But, it, but you know, and Buddha's uh, imprecating his followers not to develop these, not to be proud or think you're enlightened now because you can read people's minds or whatever. But surely don't show them to people as this is the point of this practice, because then you'll be misleading them as well. And so the development of paranormal powers and, and those kinds of things is considered the potential of the, of the, of the mind. It's all there potentially. So you, you could be, potentially you could be genius type level musician or something else also, but it, it requires that we take action in the present and sort of follow that. And, and again, the repetition comes into play. Yeah, cool. So the book was the, the book's called The Original Frontier. It's available now. Yep. So let's go and let's go and buy it. Let's get reading it. What's the red feather you're referring to? That's the imprint of Schiffer Publishing. They're out of Philadelphia. Schiffer okay. Publishing, one of their imprints. Okay. Red Feather Facebook page is where you can find the interview I did today on the book. Yeah, and I've been sidetracked Googling, and I'm having trouble because I see another Red Feather. So There are lots of Red Feathers. It's Red Feather Publishing Okay. or Red Feather Imprint. Schiffer, uh, S-C-H-I-F-F-E-R. Okay. They're out of Philadelphia. Thank you. Mark? Let's see next. Yeah, just real quick, uh, I wanted to thank Sensei for uh, his um, Unmind podcast. For those for those out there listening, uh, I really enjoyed uh, the last uh, uh, several quatrains that you put out. So thank you very much for that, sir. You're welcome. And the next one's coming up that we're just now writing, but we'll be, be recording. Deal with some of the issues you you guys brought up tonight. They speak to some of the same things, but just serendipitously. Fantastic. Well, we'll all look forward to that. So again, everybody... by the way, the the music on that is my original music. The the instrumental tracks in the background are settings of uh, sodas and liturgy to music. Although, but we're not singing the the vocals, obviously. <laughs> so my my dad and brother, who were both jazz musicians, had some influence on me. Excellent. Right. Well, we'll see you all again next week, Sensei. We'll see you. Thursdays of next month as well. Thank you very much again for joining us and everybody else have an amazing week and we'll see you all soon. Meanwhile, practice, practice, practice. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.